everybody! Welcome back to a new episode of the podcast where we ask the question, huh? Oh. 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 Mm. Oh no. Oh. Remember the odds? Now that he's <laughs> so far away. Yes, yes. Those did. It's been a while since it's been a Those did come out in the aughts. That was my pick for today. I'm sorry, I just completely ramshacked that, but I guess with No, I was I was waiting for you to start it so I could start doing the voice too. When, it's too much fun. When Stained is involved, they just crash in. And I think the front man says some really uh, wacky, wild shit on Twitter. I think that's the only reason he's still relevant. Is he relevant? Um, I just only know him as, like, a thing to meme. Because of... Oh, yeah. And that's it. You know what's bad is when we started singing that, I immediately thought it was Creed, but it wasn't. I mean, there's just a whole subgenre of alternative with, like, lead singers that sound like that. It, yeah, like, it was like ah. this. Yeah. It was like that post-grunge era where, like, everyone just took Eddie Vader and, like, went... Yeah. Oh, no, it wasn't Stained. At least, I think that apparently the guy from Stained isn't a bad guy. He's a fine guy. It's Trap. <laughs> Trap's front man. Yes. He had, yes. like, epic Twitter meltdowns. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, you know who I found out is a terrible son of a bitch. Oh. The lead singer from The Lost Prophets. Really? Yes, yes. Oh my god, that blew my mind. It was just like, oh, yeah. There, there are like surprisingly some really, really wonderful people who've like gone on to do wonderful things after being like all two thousand singers, and then there are other people who should just go to jail. Oh yeah, the yeah. um, I I remember I was watching a podcast, what at the TMG podcast, Tiny Meat Gang. Um, they had on um, what's his name, the guy from uh, Papa Roach on, I think, something sure. like that. And he's just Cut like my a, life into, into pieces. pieces. This is my last resort. Last resort. Suffocation. No breathing. No breathing. Don't give a fuck. <laughs> Uh, just so dramatic just really cranked it up to 11 with the histrionics oh yeah i think he was on the pot and he just seems like a chill guy you know there's a little yeah. bit of humbleness also like a lot of like okay i'm not gonna say they're all amazing because uh um, right you know i'm not gonna hear say creed was amazing they're really not no but some of these bands like i would say like papa roach like they've had some songs that like are you know come from a very real place they just happen mm-hmm. to fit the mold of like post grunge safe alternative rock that you still hear at like your dad or cousin's bar where they sit around mm-hmm. and talk about how great things were 10 years ago. And then 10 years ago, they talk about how great things were 15 years ago. And you yeah. find out it's a perpetual cycle of things being better in the past because they didn't realize <laughs> they could live in a world where there wasn't a need for social change or pretend right, to. Yeah. Right. Is that just, like, the natural order of aging and change is that as you get older, you're just so tired from the things that you experienced already that the concept of 
changing your cognition and the way you look at the world, like changing your perspective just seems too exhausting. I Yeah, I think it's that, but I also think... <laughs> yeah. I also think that part of it, to get to kind of get meta about it, because like I noticed this with the 90s, and I think you might have heard mm-hmm. my angry 90s Gen X r- rant. Um, sometimes people who are very vocal, like we see it nowadays, like there's people totally. who are very vocal, but in an ego, ma- like in an ego way, like mm-hmm. they change their discourse. They, 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 they look like they change their discourse. You know, sometimes they come from conservative families. Now they're mm-hmm. like very outspokenly like a leftist, but you get the sense that the dogma is still there. They still have that dogmatic way of thinking. And you see mm-hmm. that in the nineties. Because now a lot of those guys are like mm-hmm. ultra right wing conspiracy theorists. Like Billy Corgan, like is a big Alex Jones right. fan. And what happened here? Yeah, <laughs> how did we get from point A to point B? Yeah, and I I think it has a lot to do with ego. Like sometimes people mm-hmm. pick up the mantle of social justice and don't necessarily realize they're doing it in this egotistical way. Like we've talked about it in the past. Like this like brooding angsty mentality of like. I hate my job. Commercialism sucks, man. And it's like, that was Mm -hmm. a very privileged position to have. Right. I don't think that people actually realize that um, anger is actually a privilege and having space to be angry can be a privilege when other people can be judged or stereotyped or even threatened for displaying anger. Suddenly they're seen as something to be feared. Meanwhile, like, you know, I would say I, I love being a blonde, but I do think it makes me look a little more like a Karen. So, you know, I think that somebody in my position, like I could go complain about somebody to their manager, but, you know, somebody else can't. No. Yeah. No, you're right. Karen. <laughs> I, I have blended into society. Captain's log. Day 38. They don't notice me. They haven't noticed I am not truly a Karen. They have not seen the octopus tattoo. I have disguised it well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Um, I love that there is a convergence of Alex Jones to Vanderpump Rules. Oh god. Yeah, you, you my mentioned favorite... this to me. Yeah. Yes. Um, my favorite trash reality TV show. Um... Joe and I are the kind of people who like to, like, find comfort in rewatching shows. Um, I'm also sort of, like, tired of all the new stuff that's coming out and would love to watch anime to, like, retreat from all those new shows. But at the same time, like, I don't have time to read subtitles all the time. Yeah. So I just have been, like, reverting to Bravo. Um, and in one of the seasons, Tom Sandoval does this sort of, like, joke, chromio kind of duo this music duo and they have a song called touch in public it's a pretty good song i enjoy it i like i actually enjoy the vibe of it it's very silly but then i thought like oh what happened to the other guy that he's in this band with what did he go on to do because obviously tom sandoval you know went on to be a co-owner of a of a bar and now he's doing like cocktails on talk shows and stuff um and then i found out that the other guy is, like, heavily involved with Alex Jones and Jesus. the QAnon 
conspiracy theory and Alex Jones considers this guy to be like the greatest actor of our time and oh, I was boy. like oh no what did I find that's, what did I do that's incredible I didn't know that was gonna happen that's a lot I was just thinking like oh he went on to be you know the head for a different band that's what I thought I was gonna find not yeah. Alex Jones Oh, yeah. So that, that was an wild. interesting revelation. Yeah. <laughs> um, my thing was going to be from uh, Power Man 5000 to Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2 on oh, the PlayStation. I think I might have done that one already. Oh, you might have done that part already. Yeah, yeah. No, but I don't think you did the Power Man 5000. That's fair. 500, whatever. It's, uh, <laughs> now there's this water. It's like, wow, world's coming. That song. That's such a good song. Did you know that's Rob Zombie's brother? I did know that. It makes yeah. a lot of sense to me. Oh my god. And I played that game on the N64. So like, the problem with the N64, for those familiar, mm -hmm. um, and Nintendo always kind of has this issue with every generation. Like, And it's not a criticism so much it is like a problem they inherently have. Like, mm -hmm. the N64 was a beautiful system and very, you know, had some classics and was very good graphically, but didn't necessarily have the space or, like, hardware to do music properly or voice acting. Mm -hmm. That's why a lot of games didn't have it. Mm -hmm. Like, the amount of storage space utilized, because, like, that's, that's the one up of a disc. Like, you could load up an MP3 on a disc and just a larger amount of space. It, it works better. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. N64 to make to still implement the music the songs were reduced to like i think a minute 30 seconds oh gosh so, you so would, there would just be silence no 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 you would you would only hear like a minute and 30 seconds of each song whereas like if you played it on the playstation you played tony Hawk on the playstation you would hear the whole song i was gonna say i think we just heard the whole song like i yeah. think i played it on the playstation but if you played so... on the 64 you only heard about a minute 30 of the song or something like that i don't know exactly how long but all the songs had to be reduced to be compressed it's so funny thinking about like how game stations would change the same game to sort of entice people to get the different versions like i'm thinking of soul Calibur. Mm -hmm. um, and how, like, on the GameCube, you'd get Link, or how on another game station, you get Spawn, and so on and so forth. But then for this, it's like, on this station, you get a whole song. On yeah. this one, you get a minute and 30. Oh, yeah. There, I watched this beautiful video breaking down how mm -hmm. the N64 hardware worked, and it, it took Resident Evil 2 as an example, because Resident Evil 2 released on the PlayStation first. Mm -hmm. And again, because it's a PlayStation game, you can load up all the cutscenes, all the video as mp4s even mm -hmm. that was still too big for the n64 cartridge so they did this like brilliant technique of like compression and like like having like kind of utilizing a trick where the brain would fill in the gaps of like all these inherent spaces mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. audio is crap like i that's the first <laughs> that is the first resident Evil <laughs> game i ever played was resident <laughs> evil 2 on the n64 and it blew my mind it was so terrifying but I can't play it on the N64. Like, I still have it, but I can't play it because it's just so bad. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I also have the PlayStation 2 version, and it is just miles different. Mm, okay. Yeah, I was watching the semi-finals, semi the semi-finals. 
Fannels. The Fannels. Um, for the Stanley World Cup. And it was the Islanders versus the Tampa Rays, right? The Rays. Yeah, I um, think so. And yeah. it just, and it reminded me of how, um, my dad would play Nintendo 64 with us. I feel like Nintendo 64 was like a cross-generational game station. Yeah, um, of course. Like I would play with my uncle, I'd play with my dad. Um, but he would play this NHL game. And our favorite part was when he would get the game into a loop and he would just go into a circle on the rink and just he'd have like another hockey player on the other team chasing him or he'd start a fight. That's awesome. And he'd be playing, and then he'd be like, hey, kids, I started a fight. And we're like, oh, yeah. Like, we were just pumped up for a fight in the hockey game. That's um, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I, I don't know. I have, like, a lot of so many good Nintendo 64 memories. With, oh, that um, was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that was a pretty accessible station for different generations now. I just look at the PS4 and I'm like, someone turn it on for me. I don't know what I'm doing. Like I, that was, that was the system I had was N64. And like, those mm -hmm. are some of my favorite and the best games ever. Like, especially like, also, I think the, the N64 always had the one up, I think on multiplayer for inputs, Mario Kart, Mario Party, totally. any racing totally. game, yeah, wrestling games. Mm hmm. Yeah. But mm -hmm. like. Yeah, those are my experiences, but do you want me to mm -hmm. jump into the topic? I feel like, unless you have another point. I want to set the scene first before yes, we jump into please it. Do. Okay. Let's do like a little like 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 blurry the edges of your of your mind okay. and imagine a world of khakis, big bootleg khakis, striped long sleeve t-shirts, but not striped all the way, just maybe like three stripes mm -hmm. on the chest, right? You've got a bucket cap, your yeah. tinted glasses, like they're either blue or orange and somebody's chewing gum. I don't know. Maybe a girl has like frosted lip gloss on and blue eyeshadow. This one is for the early 2000s. Maybe a Comac sweater. Yes, totally. Totally. Maybe uh, a an extra in the background has like a short, almost pixie bob, but also really big Janko jeans. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, early 2000s were all about playing with shapes and form, you know? Yeah. Wait, is that Jason Biggs? <laughs> Who is that off in the distance? I think that's Jason Biggs. Jason Biggs? From Maybe American DJ Qualls. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's like, um, like there's sort of the league of early 2000s teen movies of Jason Biggs, Mina Servino, DJ Qualls, and Eliza Dushku. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, guys, if you didn't get it yet, based on everything we just said, this okay. e episode, we are talking about the song Teenage Dirtbag by Weedus. Cause I'm just a teenage dirtbag, baby. Yeah, I'm just a teenage dirtbag, baby. Listen to Iron Maiden, baby. 
Yeah. Um, there, that song is an anomaly of a bunch of different musical genres in one song, isn't it? Well, also, I feel like this episode has sort of been our Macbeth. We've planned on recording this episode for, I'd say, probably about a month now. Yes. And then we've just always had things getting in the way mm-hmm. of us recording it. And I've had it stuck in my head every single week that we've prepared to record it. So I've had Teenage Dirtbag stuck in my head for about four weeks now. Oh, I love that song. I'm not going to lie. I love saying it right at the top. Like, I've been humming and singing that song, like, for weeks. I'm just like, I'm just a teenage dirtbag, baby. No. And, like, there are some songs that I will Stockholm Syndrome myself into liking. This is not one of them. Oh, you don't like the teenage dirtbag? No, I I do not. I do not care for the teenage dirtbag. I do not like it. Um, Oh, no, but I just I just know that it's stuck in my head. I like the Phoebe Bridgers cover better. Did you but... hear the One Direction cover? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um... All the like time. All the fans who were like five years old at the time. Yeah. Were probably like I don't know this song. <laughs> oh man! Oh, like I. This is a fun thing I learned. The song did much better. It was a bigger hit in the UK than it was in the States. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a huge hit over there. And I think that's why, like, either you, like, a band like One Direction can cover it and it does very well into the UK audience. Whereas mm-hmm. in America, mm-hmm. I feel like the fans don't get it. They're like, who is this? Who is a weedist? Is this Weezer? Right. And I do think that the reason that it gets covered and you can tell that the musicians who cover it are giving it their everything is because I'm sure in some way it's a comfort to shout, I'm just a teenage dirtbag and acknowledge all of the feelings of feeling like an outcast and a weirdo in the same way that I love Creep by Radiohead. Oh, there's you a know, whole I feel like, story. There's a right. whole story I'll get to about this. Right. Um, I know I watched that one video that you sent me and I don't remember much of any of it. Um, I did go back and rewatch the music video a second time and I did notice there's always like that one band member in a band like this where he's not the bassist, he's not the drummer or even the keyboard player, but he just sort of does a bunch of weird things. Yeah. So there's one guy who plays the bongos and has like a little synth board with him. But then on those bongos is just like an apple and a banana. Good for him. And the him. whole time I watched the video, I was like, who put those fruits there? Why did they do that? Why did he need that there? Was it a compositional choice? Like, no, did they if, just need him to look busy? What if he needs his potassium? But it's not like throughout the video, the banana disappeared or there was like a bite in the apple. It was just there. Yeah, he needs his potassium. It's a good message. It was driving me, it was driving me crazy. He needs his potassium and he's in a school. You gotta remind kids to get their vegetables and proteins and fruits. No, that's not (laughs) why it was there. That's, I have no idea why it was there. (laughs) But yeah, I I I love the song. 
Uh, mm-hmm. But like this song has a history that I was not expecting, and it's very near and dear to you and I because it is a Long Island band. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, they're well. I think I think they're all from Long Island. I know that the frontman Brandon is definitely from Long Island. Uh huh. If you're ready, I can actually jump right into the history of the song and the story that surrounds it. Let's do it. All right. Teenage Dirtbag was released in June 20th of 2000 from their mm-hmm. album, eponymous debut album. The song is a moderate hit. Like I said before, it does a huge numbers in the UK. But where this song comes from is involves the story of Brandon B. Brown, the front man for the band. And this was mm-hmm. inspired by his childhood experiences. And what's beautiful about it is I think a lot of people, like you had mentioned, there is something to just yelling like about being, you know, the outcast or the teenage dirtbag. But did you know that gender and sexual orientation also come into play in the story? So that I remember in the video that you sent me. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm going to let you talk a little bit more about that because I don't really remember it too well. And I know you did more work on it. Okay. All right. So let's talk about Brandon. Brandon, born in 1973 in Northport, New York, which is on Long Island on the North Shore out in Suffolk County. Right. That's why you asked me about Northport. Have you ever been to Northport? I have been to Northport. I've been to Northport once. Um, It's a really beautiful town. It's, you know, very white, um, very traditional, but it's kind of like capey and beachy because the water's right there yeah and also it has like a lot of fun little shops and areas to hang out in yeah so this Mm -hmm. is this is the setting of where he grew up he grew up on long island on the north shore in like a in like a coastal town like i really want to go visit it sounds like a beautiful place it's a fun place to hang out yeah and he since like he's always been into music but he especially got into heavy metal he was a big acdc fan he was always he just he want he heard this and he heard the music and was like how do i make something like that and he started to try and learn to play guitar you know that kind of became part of his identity um which is you know a good thing but um this also paint the picture that this is the 80s this is reagan era this is conservative uh satanic panic era of american history and that doesn't help that in 1984, there is a unfortunate crime that takes place in his own backyard in Northport. Mm-hmm. Um, the summer of 1984 is when we'd have Ricky Cuso, also known as the Acid King. He was kind of like the oh. town's like social reject. Mm-hmm. He was he was seen kind of dealing drugs. He was known as a troublemaker. Well, he, I mean, oh, the Acid King doesn't sound like somebody you want to invite to your kid's birthday party. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it doesn't set a good tone. No. He was just kind of like a dirtbag drug user that, you know, that was the, his image. Uh, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. this summer, he would end up murdering his friend in a very brutal fashion. Plucking oh, out my his, God. Blocking out his eyes and making, like, a very, sat- like, deliberately aggressive satanic, like, like layout. Like, oh, my God. Fe- yeah. He, yeah. And then he would be apprehended and then later take his own life. Oh, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Dang. And you know what doesn't help either is that 1984 is also the summer of Richard Ramirez, another 
much oh, more no. much larger, well-known uh, serial killer that also did the whole satanic thing. Avid now, how user. do these? Can you talk about how these two incidents correlate to Weedus? Yes, it's Weedus, right? That's mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. So, how does this correlate to the lead singer's okay. teenage years? Yeah. Well, uh, the obvious thing is the sim- like the references and symbolism used to you know Satanism. Like these guys mm-hmm. were hardcore drug addicts rejected by society and embraced the satanic image. But that rejection and acceptance of the satanic image comes a lot from this second wave, not second wave, I would say like a revitalization of Christian evangelical conservatism that kind of just invaded parts of America at this time. And we still feel the effects today, but but this especially held true and was very prominent in the 80s. This is Reagan's America. This was the war on drugs. This was, you know all about the free market this is when we get and here's where it really kicks in the defunding and deconstruction of a lot of mental health facilities and education Mm. opportunities in america Mm -hmm. so you have not only taken away the resources for people who struggle with mental you know mental illness you also you know the irony of the war on drugs is it just criminalized and stigmatized people who you know have either an addiction or a leisure for using different drugs and reinforce this image of like of the deviant the dirtbag you know and then say obviously christian evangelicals anything that they didn't like was satanic and metal music Mm -hmm. was very good at embracing satanic imagery anything ranging from fantasy so Mm -hmm. like dungeons and dragons anything like that lord of the rings anything that was not christian was Harry t- Potter. Was Harry Potter. Well, this is yeah, the <laughs> 80s, but yes. No, I know, I know. I just, every time I think of, um, like, pop culture that is, like, fantasy or, like, deals with, like, a mystic element to it, um, like Harry Potter, I think of uh, that episode of The Office where Angela has to be um, a voodoo witch for their uh, murder mystery game. And she's like, I don't know, I was raised on Harry Potter. Yeah. But like, I do feel like the Reagan era, um, based on what side of privilege you were on, was either seen as quote unquote, the best years, or if you were um, in the LGBT community or in the black community, that it was incredibly harmful to you because, like, the war on drugs was also, you know, this opportunity where, like, a lot of Black people were arrested and unfairly given these extremely long punishments that other people were just gotten away with scotch-free. Like, who was arrested and who wasn't and was just, like, doing cocaine in their businesses was, you know, it was very clear who was being punished and who wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, if you, like, saw, like, the Reagan era as, like, oh, those were the best years, then, like, you were people who did not um, get hindered or hurt by, like, what was done to these other communities. Yeah. And, like, I would say that the irony is, like, we look back now. Mm -hmm. Like, it was such a weird time because, like, it wasn't really the best years e- either for anybody. Like no. even the people who 
the only people who really genuinely benefited were high-end bank investors and top CEOs. Like, this was not, yeah. like, whether you agree with me or not, the statistics just kind of show that for the middle class, even, like, mm-hmm. white America, this this would set the foundation of precedence that would further hurt the working class divide. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of deregulation of very essential functions in America. Like, obviously, the mental health facilities that were opened in the early 20th century were not amazing, but at least, like, there was a, there was at least an attempt to better understand and give resources to people with mental health, you know, issues. There's, like, a whole whirlwind of things that create this problem and, you know, epidemic in America. And even if they were, quote-unquote, like, great at the time, um, there were choices that were made to sort of create, like, instant gratification and income to the people that at that moment would benefit from it and then would just eventually lead to like hindering and poisoning the economy for decades. And we're still seeing that fallout now. Yeah. Yeah. So in the summer of 1984, this little coastal town has like this very horrific, brutal murder that is also kind of mirroring the anxiety on the West Coast with a really horrific serial killer Richard Ramirez on the loose. Mm-hmm. So there's already, like... And, like, we see it. Like, I've been a horror fan for most of my life. So, like, I'm familiar with how the 80s, despite, like, despite it being the era of horror, and there were some incredible movies made during that time, there is this reflection in pop culture and censorship with, like, like this, like this, with this evangelical Christian fear of the moral panic. Like it happened in the UK as right. well with the video nasties. Like mm-hmm. they took it even a step further. I was going to say just the way that um, different communities were handled back then, or the way that the government responded to those other communities, it would make it seem very easy to be like, oh, well, thank God we're not a part of the LGBTQ community because they're suffering with AIDS and, you know, thank goodness that we don't do drugs. So it's a good thing to, you know, stick to our traditional religious values. Like, that's the reasoning that I'm thinking was behind it, right? There was, like, an immediate, um, like, punishment being seen to these communities. And then I think that they sort of took advantage yeah, there, of that in the there media. Was, they, yeah, yeah, there was this, like, punishment. But the, but what people we see now, and, like, this mm-hmm. isn't even, like, speculation or politics. It's just kind of the state of what the reality is. Right. We see very much now that these problems that affected disenfranchised communities were created mm-hmm. to, like, were, were created to specifically target marginalized groups. Like the yeah. like how do you get a whole group of people to have an epidemic? You don't teach them about sex ed and you don't give preventative measures and you don't provide when there's a clear epidemic going on. Like Exactly. Yeah, it totally. It that's what I mean by like you know these initiatives or lack thereof that like hindered and hurt these communities, mm-hmm. you know. It it stems from something. Yeah. Um but they're not sharing what that thing is they're focusing on the result yeah Mm -hmm. but so like this is so this small town is like it's it's you know this disturbing thing happens in their own backyard the community is heavily affected and what's interesting is i watched a news report from that time 
and mm-hmm. the local authorities and even the like I remember there was this beautiful moment where like the community kids got together you know a bunch of kids in like you know rock t-shirts long hair like 80s kids right. got together to clean up the scene because they're like we don't want this to negatively impact the community the local law enforcement didn't actually believe that there was a satanic cult happening but that doesn't you know even though the people of the town knew that doesn't change the fact that there's now the stain on the town. Richard Ramirez is on the loose. This this takes the you know national news story. So the overall co- general consensus is that there's a satanic panic. There's a satanic cult going on. And anyone that listens to rock music or is any what taboo or queer is part of this cult. So Brandon's parents panic. They worry. They're like, oh, God, our son likes this music and he's around these bad kids. So the they devil. send they send him upstate to a boarding school, an all boys boarding school. Oh Jesus, that sounds like such a toxic environment. And it was because he got bullied relentlessly, and he got oh called goodness. a girl. He got called, you know, he got called, he got called like yeah. obviously, you know, gay slurs were thrown at him. And that is an interesting thing because that actually comes into the song later on when we get to the creation of the song. Right, he kind of um, put spins it on its head, um, and as somebody who like was bullied for seeming like a boy throughout like my childhood, um, like that does eventually get to you. That does start to form a part of your identity because you're trying to figure yourself out, and then you've got all these people telling you like, "Well, you're this, you're that," then you start to think, "Okay, well then I must be this." You know, it starts to confuse you. So that must have been really difficult for him. Oh yeah. Mhm. So following high school, he would um, Brandon would eventually go on to live in the Lower East Side of New York City, where he would meet fellow band members, and they would begin to write these songs. And what I love about this is that this song absolutely, and I mean, we mentioned it before. It's like the Outcast song. Like if there's something cathartic about screaming at the top of your lungs, this song was kind of inspired by that whole experience i mean literally teenage like we i don't think dirtbag is used as much by the youth now but you and i mm-hmm. definitely have heard that word dirtbag thrown around like there were definitely high school teachers who called kids who didn't behave dirtbags you know i don't i mean like i'm sure i've heard it it's not like teenage dirtbag is the first time that i've heard that term but i can't think of any particular moment where i've specifically heard it um uh, kind of similarly, um, I remember uh, we had um, Thanksgiving a couple of years ago. My mom had like a couple glasses of wine and kept calling Joe's dad a scumbag, like oh. jokingly and lovingly, like, hey, scumbag, just as like a joke. And um, his parents took that as my mom cursing, which I thought was very funny because I was like, y'all have not heard my mom curse. It doesn't sound anything like that. No. But it's funny how scumbag, dirtbag does um, suddenly become an insult, depending on the context. Well, I remember even my dad, because, like, I, in high school, you remember, and we talked about it very much, like, wanted to be the angsty metalhead and stuff like that. I remember my dad saying, don't want you to hang out with dirtbags. Like, there is very much, like, I think especially for working class in New York, like, because, like, especially if you're, like, have an immigrant background... You're already mm-hmm. like at risk of being associated with the other. So there, my dad was definitely coming from a like a place of anxiety. Like, don't become a dirtbag. 
You know, because for him growing right. up, he was very easy as an Italian-American, you know, barely spoke English, to be associated with the other, like, you're a dirtbag, you know? So well, I think I, that's also part of, um, like, the generational expectations coming from immigrants, right? They come to this country already feeling othered, so they want you to be the generation that succeeds and does well and fits in. So any sort of separation from the majority or the society, like your parents will be concerned. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, so this song comes from that experience. It comes from that. And then even like, if we break down the song, like even when he sings the chorus, there is that like kind of high pitch whininess to it. And then there's specifically mm-hmm. towards the end of the song, the chorus is sung at a slower tempo and like an imitation of a girl voice. God, I hate that part so much. I love that part. I love that part. But it's all done in to almost like in spite of the way he was bullied in his boarding school. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like like you said, in spite of um, being critiqued by this thing, then it's like, okay, well then this is how I'm going to sing, and this is how I'm going to play. Yeah. So this, they get signed. I still just don't like the sound of it. I love this song. (laughs) They get signed to Columbia Records. And what's funny is that when they, when they got signed to Columbia Records, there was a big pressure from the producers to uh, change the tone of the the singing to be more masculine. Because they Mm -hmm, didn't mm -hmm. think that uh, they considered the song too effeminate and gay. (laughs) But Brandon, God bless him, he stuck to his guns and kept his original vision. The only thing that changed is in the song, he talks with the girl's boyfriend, and he says he brings a gun to school. Well, Uh, I'm glad you brought that up, because that's a very interesting moment. I think that a lot of people have edited it out because they associate it with school shootings. But however, the person that he's describing in the song is not what we've known to believe is the majority of, like, the experience of people who, you know, cause a school shooting. If anything, he is more, like, the guy he's describing is the football jock who would feel no repercussions from carrying a gun with him to school. Yeah, no, and I That's how agreeing. I perceive it, yeah. No, that yeah. is the way to perceive it. But it's mm-hmm. just, like, because this song came out in 1999, and... Definitely, um, you know, right. it Columbine. was a bad time. Columbine yeah, was... just happened. There is no version. There is no recorded version where you hear the uh... the gun mentioned. Yeah, it's all okay. even even their re-recorded version of the song from 2000, 2020, sorry, right. doesn't have the gun line mentioned. Well, that's what um, is so interesting because like, yeah, it was definitely a bad tone at the time. Right. Any mention of it. Um, could be deemed insensitive. But I definitely think that the person he was describing in the song comes from, like, a position of power and privilege where it's like, he is not going to be in trouble if he can do this. No, yeah, that's I, that yeah. was... I could say with confidence that was the intention. Totally, yeah. Yeah, especially, like, if you grew up... Like, I assume he's also thinking about a more traditional 
you know, maybe small town kind of mentality, you know, the popular mm-hmm. kid, like it would just be more of like a right to bear arms and not get in trouble for bringing a gun to school. Exactly. And then also being dressed like someone who is into that sort of like goth um, metal band listening appearance, then that person is probably more likely to get stopped and questioned for, you know, having dangerous intent rather than the person that he's describing in the song. Well, it's interesting because following Columbine, we'd get not another, I mean, a somewhat satanic panic, another one. Right, it sort of enhances that even more so. Because the first thing that gets blamed when there's a school shooting is heavy metal music, horror movies. Marilyn Manson got blamed for Columbine. And it's just, it's almost like we know now more than ever we want to blame everything else but ourselves. Like, there is a very clear issue right. I was... in, in America, especially in the last 15 yeah. years, where we've, like, tied masculinity and fetishized the gun, and that's a huge problem. I was going to say, like, back then, it was video games, and now it's, like, oh, mental health, but then that's the only time we talk about mental health. And also, mental health issues doesn't make people who have mental health or, like, are living with mental health issues, it doesn't just make people inherently want to take a gun and shoot other people. So there's always one excuse or another. But without, like you were saying, like, looking at ourselves, how are we evaluating, um, like, the iconography of owning a gun? Exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. Wait, I forgot where I was in the history of this whole thing. <laughs> well, so we, so we got to the part where we talk about, like, the edited part of the song and how he doesn't sing it in the 2020 version. Yes, yes, um, yes, okay. Yeah, yeah. So this song comes out. Mm-hmm. It does fairly well here, but it peaks at number two in the UK. Again, this whole, this song really blew up over there more than anything. Um, it spent a few weeks at number one in Australia. Mm-hmm. It had, it really didn't, it actually, I don't even think it necessarily charted on the 100 billboards in America, although it was number seven on the alternative songs. No, I think it tanked here, right? Yeah, it tanked. Like, it was mm-hmm. relatively popular with the alternative scene, but not in general. But it's also a song that's hard to, like, fit. I was like, going to say, I think that... It doesn't surprise me that it didn't chart on the top 100 because I don't think it's necessarily a song for anybody other than the alternative kid who also feels like they're being picked on for being yeah. a dirtbag. Well, because like at the stru- on a structural level, the song has like new metal implements, like it has like that hip hop beat that has that you know record scratching mm-hmm. involved. Then it's got a little bit of a pop punk thing. But mm-hmm. when the chorus hits, that it's a lot more aggressive and edgy so it's like this yeah. pop punk like hip-hop influenced i don't think they core. knew who to advertise it to they had they had there's a lot of things this the columbia and sony inherently did not know what to do with the song right like, and you kind of have to wonder if you don't know what to do with it then why are you promoting it in the first place like, like what's confusing is isn't that, it your job to create a space for somebody to figure that out yeah so this this song okay 
This song was also used for the 2000 movie Loser, which featured mm-hmm. Jason Biggs and Mina Saveri. Is that how you say your last name? No, uh, Mina Servino. Mina Servino, okay. Who right? I love after watching that movie, Loser. Okay. Yeah. She's been in a lot of things. Yeah. She also replaced Mandy Moore in playing Ares's voice in the mm. Kingdom Hearts games and also Final Fantasy Advent Children, um, which was a weird choice. I really liked Mandy Moore. Oh, no, you're right. It is Mina Savari. I'm thinking of somebody else. I think I'm thinking of the one from Romy and Michelle. Yeah, mm. I'm thinking of Mira Servino <laughs> from Romy and Michelle. Oh, okay. That's no, my Savari. mistake. That's all Mina good. Savari. Um, so. Mira Sorvino is somebody different. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so she replaced Mandy Moore as the voice of Ares. And it was fine. I didn't mind it. I just actually kind of really liked Mandy Moore more. That's <laughs> I thought fair. she was a good fit. Yeah. I feel like Mandy Moore could kind of do the sort of, like, docile, angelic part of... Aries without being too submissive. I feel like Mina Savaris was a little bit more of that like submissive stereotype. That's fair. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But what this video this video is essentially the lyrics of the song brought to life, which confused me because I was like, oh, I guess they just took clips from the movie. So I thought this movie was about a dirtbag in high school trying to get with the hot girl. That's not the movie at all. I mean, I thought this was an American Pie music video, so at least you were on the right movie. So I watched the movie, and I liked okay. it. It's not amazing. It's from the same director as... Uh... As the music video? No, no, no. From, okay. Um... Why am I dropping the... Damn it. Hold on. Now I gotta look this up, because I really enjoyed this movie, and I liked the director. But um, Amy Amy Heckerlin, she also did... Oh, um... Okay. Yeah, why? She did, um... She did Clueless. Clueless. She did Clueless, European Vacation, Fast Times at Richmond High, which I love Fast Times at Richmond High. Right, we've talked about that one with the Stacey's Mom music video. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, like, this is all there. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, all the things... So, the music video, it's not the movie at all. The movie is about Jason Biggs from a small country town gets a scholarship to go to a big school in you know in New York City. They don't say which one. Mm-hmm. And he goes there, and he's having a really difficult time because his roommates are entitled uh, rich assholes who get okay. him kicked. But he starts to fall for this girl, Mina Savari, mm-hmm. who's like the goth alternative girl who likes Ever... What's the band that she really likes? It's like Everlast or something like that? Sure. Yeah, Everlast is, like, her favorite group, I think. Yeah, sure. Maybe. <laughs> Everlast? I don't know. But either way, she loves this group. He tries to pursue her, but she's dating Greg Kinnear, who's her professor. Oh, I love Greg Kinnear. <laughs> is it Greg Kinnear? Why am I? My brain is I don't just know. broken. I'm so Maybe sorry. she should stick with Greg Kinnear. Like, there's a whole power issue with dating your professor and also dating one of your students. But also, it's Greg Kinnear. It is Greg Kinnear. I, I really like Greg Kinnear. He's such a douchebag in the movie. Oh, no. But um, I don't know why. I, I like him. Maybe because of Baby Mama? No, he's fine. He's just yeah, yeah, in the yeah. movie. He plays a brilliant douchebag. But, like, sure, I remember sure. I, 
I texted you. I was like, wow. I was like, this movie is very, in a weird way, very relevant now. Like, especially because mm. we went to college. Like, you went to, you actually went to college in New York City and I went to mm-hmm. Queens. But, like, we're kind of familiar with the commuting life. And, like, mm-hmm. she has to commute from Westchester and she has to lie to her mom when she's crashing at a place because she mm. couldn't get the right train. Like, mm-hmm. there are some really cool elements that felt very real. And I, I enjoyed the movie. It was cute. But it's not the music video at all. And it's... They crammed the song in the intro to the movie in a weird way that doesn't necessarily make sense. Maybe it's because the video is so on the head with it's like maybe, literally being the song. Do you think that maybe because they had no idea how to advertise it, the only thing that they could do is anchor it to a movie? I have no idea the, perhaps the, context, the maybe. Yeah, perhaps the only way they felt like they could properly advertise the song is like, well, let's put it with a movie. So the fact that it doesn't even fit properly in the beginning of the movie makes me think that it was just sort of a last-ditch effort. Maybe, but it's Mm -hmm. weird to me that they then made this whole separate music video about, like, that could be its own movie. Sure, sure. It's a completely different scenario. He's like a weirdo in high school who has, like, a hunter's cap on. Yeah, well, he does wear the hunter's cap in the movie. Yeah, oh, <laughs> but he he's does. Not like, yeah, he does. But in the in the music so video, JD like, Salinger he, of him. Yes, in the in the in the video though, like he is the dirtbag. Like, like at the end, Mina Savari does come up to him with the Iron Maiden tickets. I think also the way that she lip syncs the lyrics are. The lip movements that I assume the lead singer made to sound like that. And there's something about it, like the way she so perfectly mimics the way he sings it, that bothers me too. It doesn't help. It doesn't look like she's using her regular speaking voice. It looks like she's trying to be like, I don't know. Yeah. Also... I don't know. I feel like it was a kind of a lazy bridge to just repurpose that part of it. I don't know. You're, I don't you're know. You're just I'm not into like, it. You just don't want to see Iron Maiden with me. I don't want to go see Iron Maiden, you know? I, that's you know, that's my prerogative. Honest, to be honest, like as much as I love and appreciate some of the songs, I don't think if I had to choose, I wouldn't necessarily want to go see Iron Maiden. I'm also like a little skeptical of songs that reference something else too much. I'm sure that by the time we actually post this episode, I'm going to be like, well, what about this song? You like this song? But I also don't like the, I said, what about breakfast at Tiffany's? <laughs> like, oh, wait, who I did think... that song? I know that song. I just don't remember who did it. I can't remember the name of the band. But yeah, any song that just sort of relies on some other pop culture reference then I'm kind of like well then you couldn't really properly describe what you were feeling if that's what you're focusing on I'm gonna find out who sings that song yeah but he does he's a dirtbag he's Brandon, a dirtbag Brandon was bullied for being a dirtbag and he oh, wants yeah. to just he just dirtbag. wants to see Iron Maiden with a girl Deep blue something. There was no way I was going to remember that. Fair. I recall we both kind of liked it. It's like, ugh, whatever. 
<laughs> you know what's funny is that for this song, I actually did like a watch along and research in Discord with a few people. Oh, and yeah? it was interesting to get the perspectives, like, because I had a couple people in there who were in their 30s and were like, yeah, man, I love this song. And then there was a couple people in their early 20s who were like, yeah, my sister played this song and it's kind of cool, but the video's whack. But then what's funny is that some of the fashion in that video is coming back. Oh, totally. Pop punk style is and like odd style is back. It's officially back. Yo, I did it. I finally bought high socks. Oh, yeah. I'm going to wear them with my Vans. Yeah. I bought a pair of like ripped cargo shorts that sit very loosely on my hips. And I just, I felt like my 12-year-old self again. <laughs> I My goal is to copy the drip of uh, the great and influential Hassan Piker. He has I, some great I fashion. Know. I don't know who that is. He's the guy, I don't know if you know him, he is, he is, his uncle is the Young Turks, and he has his own, like, kind of political commentary online. I don't know this person. Oh, no, he looks familiar. I've definitely seen him before. Just probably, like, around. Just around on the internet, you know? Daddy Hassan. <laughs> <laughs> So, but yeah, the fashion's coming back. Let me, I will wrap totally. up the story of the song. I will wrap okay. up the story of the song. Okay. So the song doesn't do amazing in the United States, but has like a lingering effect. Like people know it. Like if it plays at emo night, people will sing along. It, it's definitely in the repertoire of like, you know, songs, maybe not as big. No, I definitely, definitely nowhere near as big as the other pop punk hits. Like if someone hears Fat Lip, they're going to, everyone's going to know it or you know, what's right. my age again, or simple you know, any plan, simple plan. Yeah, those. Yeah. But like this song does sit in the recesses of everyone's mind. And especially in the UK, because then you get One Direction covering it, you get a bunch of people covering the song. Right. I do think that there is something very cathartic about people who heard the song and can relate to it shouting like I'm just a teenage dirtbag. Um, I was listening to this NPR talk about they were sort of revitalizing the George Carlin, like, seven words you can't say on TV. Yeah. And they were talking about sort of the actual physiological um, chemicals that are released when you curse, which is, like, when you curse and you shout, like, there's a release of serotonin. It feels good to shout and curse. So I feel like this song, and kind of similarly, like, how I feel about Creep by Radiohead, is just, it feels really good to say it out loud. And I feel like that's the vibe that I get from the people who sing this song, whether it's a cover or, you know, the original version. Well, even, like, when we talked about a few episodes back, I think mm -hmm. that's the same thing when people sing, uh, you know, uh, fall down by red jumpsuit apparatus it's the same vibe it's this re this cathartic release of some aggression you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's a good point yeah yeah this song it's just it's not for me that's fair um, yeah they brendan they did make a mistake make a mistake early on where the whatchamacallit the masters to the song he left at the sony offices and they never got him back and Unfortunately, because this song does show up a lot. It shows up in like rock band. It shows up in Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, the Netflix show. The, of course. That really cringy episode that I get annoyed about where like 
the punk band rises from the dead and they but they're like we're a heavy metal band and we play metal music I'm like that and then no, they play don't. teenage dirtbag <laughs> the sabrina's band plays teenage dirtbag yes they play okay, teenage okay. dirtbag yeah yeah but it's still like that show okay, is such a mess <laughs> that show is a fucking mess but it's such a mess yeah but like they saw no royalties from that song at all and it's a real shame I did think that was really interesting because we've talked a lot about like owning music, who owns music, who gets the rights to it. And then they actually sort of did something similar to our previous conversation about Taylor Swift, who is working on re-recording her next album um, that has been taken from her red. Um, They re-record Teenage Dirtbag, correct? They re-recorded it as closely as possible and gave it the YouTube test. And what that means is they uploaded their reversion to YouTube. And mm-hmm. once it got copyright strike, they knew it was close enough. And they they had to settle the dispute. And now I th- now I think they now that they've re-recorded it and made their own like master, I'm pretty sure that you can pay them for the royalties of that song. I'm mm. I'm not entirely sure how it works. I think what it is is that, um, and what I have learned from like the Taylor Swift scenario and with like Olivia Olivia Rodrigo um, borrowing some of her music or like sampling it in one of her songs, is that if you want to play Teenage Dirtbag in a movie, you can because they're so similar now. You can choose to do the version that is owned by Sony and then you have to pay the rights to Sony or you can just pay Wheatus themselves for the rights to use the Wheatus version that they recorded in 2020. That's from what I gather because um, Olivia Rodrigo asked for use of the chords in New Year's Day and she would have had to pay Scooter Braun to use it, but instead she re-recorded it herself and gave taylor swift the writing credit amen yeah yeah so that is like another way around it law is a very funny thing it also sucks when like you're just a small time band whose only hit is this song and then you're trying to go against a business in court who can afford lawyers and fees and to draw it out as long as possible. So it's a very complicated process, you know? And I think this is an example of where, like, Taylor Swift, if she wanted to, if they were to sue her in court, could at least handle it. And if anything, it would only make her look empathetic. Nobody's paying attention to this happening to Wheatus. Sorry, Wheatus. But... There is, like, a privilege in Taylor Swift having the empire that she has. Yes. Yeah. I did really like in that video um, that when they were talking about re-recording the song, the thing that they were having the hardest time with was the cell phone sound. Yep. The little doo-doo-doo. I think it's it's the thing that interrupts the, um, whatchamacallit, the, the, like, mention of the gun. No, I think that's something different. Oh, that they you're just right, do you're sort right, of bad. like a little record scratch. You're right, my bad. It's okay. I think that uh, a lot of songs back in the day just used a record scratch to cover. Now artists like record alternative versions that are appropriate for the radio, but back in the day you wouldn't do that. You just like cover it with a record scratch. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
that is so. the story of the song. That is the story of the song. I love the song. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, Tom. Um, yeah, I just couldn't get into this one. It's I all feel good. Like there were there were some stories from the other songs where I was like, oh wow, I'm really interested in this now. I'm glad I figured this out. This one, I was just like, okay, fine. <laughs> For me, I think I really grew fascinated because it allowed me to explore, you know, 80 Satanic Panic and just kind of the, mm -hmm. the un like, the devastating reach it had, like, and has yeah. we, because we, I mean, not going to say anything, I'm not, I'm not objectively saying anything, but some <laughs> could argue that we're kind of experiencing another Satanic Panic now. I think we're experiencing all kinds of panics yeah. now. But like essentially the equate, you know, the equivalency of making somebody the other, and this isn't yes. me like giving any credence to Ricky Cuso. He's a real vile piece of shit, but he was also a drug addict, and you know, drug addicts were kind of created and like kind of enforced during this time that was ironically supposed to be the war on drugs, you know. But right, exactly. That's the thing is like the war on drugs. Depending on your perspective and depending on like what bias sort of information you've been given can either seen as this like saving grace to the drug community or something that hurt and hindered a lot of people. It hurt people with mental health issues, disabilities, um, people who grew addicted to prescriptions, and also like the black community for how they were unfairly um, punished for their experiences versus like the white community. Yeah. Yeah. But that is the story. 80s were crazy, you... man. 80s were crazy. Yeah. Do you want to ask the question? I'm going to ask you the question. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this would be as successful today as it was back then? Sure. <laughs> you think maybe so? It's just, maybe because I love it. I genuinely love this song. I think this could, like, well, pop punk's coming back. Totally. Imagine if out of nowhere someone just made this song. Because I think it would hit all the bases. It would get the old heads involved. The That's a good point. Would, if, yeah, like, Machine get, Gun Kelly did a cover of this, would people love it? Yeah. Like, yeah. it would definitely vibe with, especially now with this more reinforcement of the older generation versus the youth. I think that this would very much... Maybe not in its entire original capacity, but mm -hmm. to some capacity, a song like this, like it still rings true for a lot of people. I think this song would I maybe even do better today because like, mm. but that because like in the two thousands, like when we talk about it, it didn't necessarily have a place. Mm -hmm. Like back then, if you didn't fit specifically into a genre, you were harder to sell, you know. But nowadays, crossing of genres is so commonplace that you're almost right. kind of. Like, and that's my big problem with, like, a lot of, like, old school, like, rock heads and metal heads. They're so angry and, like... Too rigid. They're so, like, angry and gatekeepy about whatever they like. Yeah. That they fail to see, like, the importance and... Like, the youth carry the culture. You totally. know, like, even... And it's ironic. Like, I, put, I shared this amazing uh, TikTok on my Instagram, like, a week ago where it was, like, this girl doing this wiggly dance saying like when elitist metalhead see you wearing a slipknot shirt and she just waves her finger like no no but it's very true like that elitism but now it's like back then you got shit on for liking the new metal stuff but now it's like we look back and are like slipknot was revolutionary for their time and it's like oh <laughs> nobody wanted to say it back then 
Sure. Well, so there's, you know, um, hindsight is twenty twenty, And also that's like when we can look back at things. Like when we were kids and we were listening to pop punk, we weren't like, My Chemical Romance is the classic rock band of our generation. But now we can look back at them and be like, man, they were fucking amazing. You know? Yeah. Um, that is a really good point. And Phoebe Bridgers could probably be the person that sort of merges that gap between like when the song first came out and bringing it forward to um, a current generation. But Phoebe Bridgers, her aesthetic still just isn't quite mainstream enough. Like Mm. I've known her name and she's become much more mainstream since her most recent album. But I think that her sound is still just like a little too mature for the younger generation. Gotcha. Yeah. So having somebody else who is, like, the face... Like, if Olivia Rodrigo covered Teenage Dirtbag, I think there would be a major boom. Yeah. Yeah. I think even if this song just came out a few years later, it probably would have been better for Yeah, even just a itself. few years later. Yeah, although, if it like, came out in, like, 2006... Although I don't know because this mm. style is so much of two thousand, like totally. by two thousand six. If you're like, it is like, but I think really what makes things work now is like how many SoundCloud rappers are also like. There's a lot of genre bending going on right now, and I think that's which is a great, great thing. Yeah, yeah, and it's much more commonplace and accepted now. Whereas back then, it's like, who is the song for in America? It's not from metalheads, even though it's like, in clearly inspired. And right. has metal like riffs attached to it. It's not for like punk kids, even though it's, you know, a rebellious punk song. It's not for hip hop fans, even though it does have elements of like hip hop beat and that record scratch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like it would, I think it would, but I mean, it goes to show because it did phenomenal in the UK where I don't think the genre, like even though the UK is the birth of like punk and all these different <laughs> movements, I don't think they were so tied down to genre like we were in the United States. Yeah, I mean, also, like, when you think about it, United States is still such a baby country. We're only, like, we're wee baby. It's a teenage dirtbag. Like, it's in its it teenage dirtbag years. And maybe oh, I don't boy. have to like the song, but I can still acknowledge that the U.S. is a teenage dirtbag. Totally fair. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tom. Mm-hmm. What has been your weekly obsession? Or I guess... You're four week? Uh, what's been your obsession lately? Um, hmm, just catching up on things, doing a lot more photography with my Polaroid. And cool. like, I'm trying to set a goal in July to post a day. Like I nice. post makeup post every day, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think that worked really cool in December. I got some really cool ideas and had fun with those projects. So that's basically what I've been doing. That's about it. That's about awesome. You? Um, I have been sort of immersed in Michelle's honor. Um, I think that her coming out with crying at H Mart and also the sort of like paradoxical joy of her third album as Japanese Breakfast um, have sort of coincided with my own experiences with grief and sort of like blossoming into who I need to be. So I've been really enjoying like listening to Jubilee um, and also Crying at H Mart was such a beautiful book and also like really inspirational for me for like 
creating what I'm working on out of grief, um, which we will share once it is done. Um, but yeah, separately, also, like, I love being a professor. Hell yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Amen. Yeah, so that's great. Um, I've enjoyed that, like, Monday and Wednesday I get to, like, make ceramics, and then on Tuesdays and Thursdays I get to teach silkscreen. So that's a lot that's, of fun. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, it's a good way to spend the week. Hell yeah. Mm. All right, well, I guess that's it. Yeah, I was going to ask if you're cool with me rapping. I got to run. Yeah. yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> I'm sorry. Thank you. No, you're good. All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. This mm-hmm. was Teenage Dirtbag brought to you by Weedus, not Weezer. Weedus. Nope. Weedus. 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 Wheat us. Is there wheat in here? Wheat is us. We are wheat. We are plants. <laughs> Just, I don't know. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in. You can find us on the Spotify's and the Googles and the Apples and the Amazon, maybe? Yeah, but be sure to follow on the Instagram at Remember the Zero Zero S Podcast, also on mm-hmm. YouTube, where I will gladly be dealing with issues and <laughs> we've we've been kind of lagging in social media but it's only because we're just actually enjoying our lives enjoying our lives and working yeah yeah we're just doing our best to be people first and then you yeah. know social media ain't, people second ain't no rest for the wicked yeah but with that guys thank you so much for tuning in and have a good day bye 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 who are you? We're Satanic Panic. And we'll be taking your instruments for practice. Over our dead bodies. <laughs> <laughs> Make it hurt, guys. Yeah! <laughs>